0: Take a network break. Help yourself to a festive virtual donut as we dash through this week's tech news. We've got stories on a new Cisco certification roadmap, the FTC suing Microsoft, Broadcom financial results, space networking, and more. A quick reminder, this is going to be our last network break for 2022 as we shut down for the holiday season. We'll be back in 2023. Uh, the Packet Pushers are hosting a live stream event uh, with sponsor Dell Technologies on DPUs in the future of distributed infrastructure. We're going to have six short informative sessions on topics, including what network engineers need to know about DPUs, accelerating distributed workloads on DPUs, and more. Uh, we initially planned to have this event in December. We're moving it to January 23rd, 2023. So there's plenty of time to sign up. You can sign up at packapushersnet slash And if you already signed up for the original December date, you should get an updated invitation
1: automatically. Yeah, the change freeze will still be going in January, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you'll be preparing for the year. You'll have plenty of time to come along. No excuses. That's right. <laughs> and there's not been much news, has there? We haven't had much news this week, really. Um, well, so we've got a
0: few things we're not going to you know, drag on because uh, we don't want to waste your time. But yeah, we did come up with a few interesting things. And before we get to them, just a reminder that uh, we've got a, a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet talking about SASE. We're going to talk about key elements, including the 40 client agent, what cloud delivered security services are available, SASE use cases and more. All right, so let's dive into that news first. Cisco is changing how it updates certification exams by providing certification roadmaps that are going to announce changes on a regular and predictable schedule.
1: Wow, how modern. (laughs) 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 It's it's quite interesting to see, like, basically what they're saying is people have been asking Cisco to give them consistency and predictability around the state of certifications. People start studying for something and then just randomly out of the blue, they change. And people Mm -hmm. who've been preparing for some time are suddenly cut off. So they seem to be saying, well, okay, well, we'll answer that finally, you know, we listen to customers in inverted commas. Let's do it so the exams refresh and you know when that's going to happen and you can plan for your, your taking your exams.
0: Which makes great sense and kind of makes me wonder why It hadn't always been like this, but sure, you know, uh, programs uh, develop and evolve. Um, Cisco says it's going to review each technology every year on the same quarterly schedule and then announce blueprint changes three to six months in advance and then publish the updated exam three to six months after the blueprint is published. The idea is, as you mentioned, to give folks time to adapt to any changes that uh, may have come along and and have to adjust their studying.
1: Yeah, it would I mean it's a good idea and it's a sign that Cisco is actually committing full-time resources to its educational program. There was a time when Cisco training was really a, a, an ad hoc effort by engineers to help other engineers and a couple of you know enlightened executives inside of Cisco who was willing to sponsor the education program. But it's now very clear that Cisco regards it's you know certification program as a marketing initiative that way if you can reach people before they enter the industry or as they're in that early phase you get long-time ma- marketing benefits people attached to your brand and attach to mm-hmm. your products and so um but the flip side is of course is that people expect to get value for money from their training and that's not always something we've associated with Cisco training in years gone by people would sit for exams that are no longer relevant you know uh, or often felt that the exams were very poorly done, or the company that was hosting the exams was a very uh, not much of an organization. It's fair to say you see a lot of criticism of the company who conducts the actual exams um, and so forth. So people don't always feel. So I do feel like, on one hand, it's a recognition that while this is a pure marketing effort now, Cisco doesn't really see much value in it, except as a way to get people locking into the brand or attached to the brand. But now that the training is up to date, it will reflect what's happening now. That's the bright side. The downside I can see, many customers are working with yesterday's technologies and may not actually be getting the training that they need for that. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like a no-win, no-win situation sometimes.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that as technology begins to change more quickly, they'd want to update exams to reflect that technology, particularly if it's built around Cisco products. So mm. yeah, that makes sense. I think Cisco, as it's you know, facing more competitive pressure, it's no longer the ultimate dominant and sort of default in the networking industry. Hmm. Uh, the, the certification program for Cisco becomes even more valuable to the organization because it does yep. tend to lock people in and get them on board and bring them into that whole ecosystem. So, uh, if they were treating you know the, the certification program as more of an add-on, I think now it's essential to their strategy going forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, I haven't looked too closely, but my sense is that a lot of the fundamental learning that used to be there has sort of been beaten out these days by more of product learning. That's not to say it's completely gone. It's just a, a general observation is that the focus has shifted slightly, aligning to the marketing message. So, But I still think Cisco is doing a great job with that education and doing more to promote the market. Um, and and on the whole, it's a net positive, so don't get me wrong.
0: And if you're on the certification track or thinking about it, Cisco is recommending that certification seekers sign up with Cisco so you can get alerts on the updates and the changes and get tied into that whole uh, process they're using Uh, We've got links in the show notes to the Cisco information, as well as a uh, blog from Wendell Odom, who is a well-known trainer, uh, with his thoughts uh, on how it's all coming together. Uh, We'll move on. Uh, Elon Musk is having bedrooms added to Twitter's San Francisco office, but Facebook has decided to sublet a massive European HQ building in Dublin instead of requiring workers to come to the office. The Irish Times reporting that Facebook has decided not to occupy a new 375,000 square foot office space in Dublin. Facebook has a 25-year lease on the building, but they're going to look for other tenants to occupy it. So there's this uh, push and pull going on between, should workers come back? Should workers stay home? What do we do?
1: It's interesting. We've seen a lot of the technology companies um, talk about laying off staff. Like uh, Facebook was rumored to be ending 10,000 jobs across the Mm -hmm. organization. And part of that is 350 jobs in Ireland where this building is. But I guess it's also an acceptance by Facebook that not everybody wants to come into the office. And if they're not going to come, you don't want to be paying for a 25 year lease on a massive of office.
0: That ship has sailed, but. That ship has yeah. sailed. So you just don't,
1: you know, people are not coming into the office. They don't need a desk anymore and a phone and a and a keyboard and a computer on the desktop. They've just got laptops and that's all they need. And, you know, they only came into work because everybody else did. So <laughs> it's kind of a bit of a problem.
0: Uh, I mean, I'm uh, thinking about that, that you know, relatively new giant Apple campus uh, here in the US that they spent a, a lot of money, lavished a lot of attention on. And you kind of wonder like mm. that, that, you know, that used to be sort of this is a sign of our power and dominance. And now it's kind of like that might have been a bad idea. Yeah, considering right. how right. things are going.
1: Yeah, so I looked up. I did some other research on this to find out what it's at, because it sort of prompts the question as if, if our city emptying out. And I saw, read a report somewhere and it said, before the pandemic, 95% of office spaces were occupied. Today, that number is closer to 47%. That's pretty generalized. And I couldn't find where I got that number from because I tweeted it out out of it. must have been reading uh, something, something, something. Mm-hmm. So I did some searches. Apparently, New York office occupancy hits pandemic era milestone at more than 40% fall. That doesn't sound very high. Um, <laughs> and then there's another one in the UK where they're talking about uh, 40%, 47% increase in office space and and all this sort of stuff. So the actual uptake of office space is, you know, if you want to take into account a variation, but it's under half full today, yep. which sort of suggests at this point, we've been back from, you know, the lockdowns, what, for two years now, a year and a half? Yep. Something about like
0: yeah. that. Mm-hmm.
1: That suggests that you know, if if people are going to come back to the office, it's not happening. And it is it reasonable to say that it's never going to happen? Very hard to tell for sure. But I think um, not helping here is also the geopolitics. So the Ukraine war is changing how supply chains work, raw materials and the money flows in Europe. Massive changes and that's having economic impacts as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. China's changing. We talked a lot about China and how, um, they seem to be disengaging from the existing trade system, which has been very, you know, America, China, China, America, China Manufacture China is now diverting more and more of its internal production to its internal economy and doing less less focus because it's now cheaper to run factories in Vietnam or Malaysia or Indonesia. And as the Chinese salaries rise, it's no longer the best place to manufacture. So they have to shift to making it for themselves. And then, of course, we've got uh, inflation happening, and the reserve banks are signaling that they're running out of options to control inflation. Have you noticed that? Like, people, their prices are increasing and inflation's increasing, but everybody's saying that they've got no money and all that sort of stuff. So there's things going on here. Maybe the office space thing's related to that.
0: I mean, this Facebook story was surprising because it's kind of the, uh, I I mentioned the Elon Musk thing because that's sort of, uh, the two polls we're we're, uh, dealing with here, Elon Musk is going back to that sort of, old school, you need to be in the office and not just in the office, mm. but all the time you need to be hardcore. It's a badge of honor if you're sleeping under your desk kind of thing versus Facebook saying, yeah, we spent a 25, mm. we put down mm. a 25 year lease on this building and yeah, we're not going to use it. So I, yeah. I'm not really sure how this is going to play out. <laughs> I it's you know, I understand there's this belief that if you have people together, you get um, better results. You can sort of keep an eye on what they're doing. Maybe some there's some synergy having people around with ideas and so on. But there's also, you know, you can attract more talent if you cast a wider net and don't force people to live in one geographical area. So yeah, I'm not really sure how this is going to play out.
1: Well, I think the I think the Twitter thing is an outlier. That is a business uh, undergoing a massive amount of transformation.
0: I'm trying and, to figure out if it's just an outlier or yeah, if it's, you know, going to create a permission structure for no. other tech companies to be like, yeah, we're going back to the hardcore, everybody can be <laughs> in the office, blah, blah, blah.
1: I think so. When you're operating at that sort of scale and you're going to undergo a lot of transformation, you need to do a lot of high... Density communication. A lot of people mm. don't know what they're doing. You know, he's disrupted the holos in the organization by cutting headcount by fifty percent. Really, the only way to establish new relationships is to get together for a while. And he seems to be a very hands-on, face-to-face, not very good at remote, very micromanaging type when he's mm-hmm. engaged. Mm-hmm. So I see that as an outlier. Yes, I don't think I think any normal business that is, you know, making a profit and doing normal things, you know, following a strategy and delivering quarter by quarter. Things are established, but if that business was to go through a massive change where somebody brought in a new CEO and said, "All right, we're totally changing everything. Half you people can go home," and <laughs> <laughs> do you know, that's right. uh, can you do that with remote work? Yeah, maybe not know, harder. Yeah. Not impossible, but you know, there's a definite inflection point where maybe getting together until things settle down is worthwhile for a while. So perhaps, perhaps, at least with the way people are today, like right, a lot of people today are still not well embedded in the idea of remote work and the tools aren't there so yeah
0: well i'm also wondering you know what's going to happen with there's sort of uh talk in the uh, health community about uh potential spikes coming in COVID and also the flu as people get together for the holiday uh, which also has an impact on getting people into the office so yeah mm. interesting times interesting times yeah all right, moving on. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission is suing to block Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of game developer Activision. The FTC warns that Microsoft could harm competition by degrading or denying competitors access to popular games. The FTC cites a previous Microsoft acquisition of a game developer, Bethesda Software, where Microsoft made some games exclusive to its own Xbox console.
1: Yeah, we've talked a lot about how the competition authorities are now starting to step in, or particularly how government is now going to push back against technology companies over the last, I don't know, two years? I think we've been talking about that. Yeah. And how the governments now have a different approach to tech takeovers. They think they're actually damaging to make, you know, behemoths that are bigger than everybody else, and in some cases, even bigger than most governments. Like, look at Apple, for example. Um. And so I think we're going to see a much more activist sort of approach. Now, there are two very large tech buyout deals on the table at the moment. Microsoft Activision, which is $69 billion, and Broadcom VMware, which is $61 billion. Uh-huh. Uh, and both of those are either actively under investigation or actively being you know, um, blocked in the case of the FTC. And I think this is where we're seeing the governments are saying, we don't want to see mega behemoths of tech companies. We don't want to see monopolies. We don't want to see you know, the Enrons and the GEs of the General Electrics of the previous era, where they just have mm-hmm. everything under one umbrella and those organisations become uncontrollable. And when they fail, the damage is enormous. And so I don't really feel that there's much here. I think the interesting part about the Activision deal, of course, is that Activision is in deep trouble, had a whole problem with uh, a leadership team that was abusive to staff and how was not being, you know, a, a, an un- Fair work environment a very for a lot unsavory of savoury culture, yeah, yeah, and so Microsoft taking it over is actually kind of rescuing that company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is sort of a reason, but at the same time, the company could fix itself. You know, the the board could step in and wipe out all of the executives yep. and rebuild yep. the culture. You know, why not? Yep. Mm-hmm. But uh, and the Broadcom VMware one, yeah, that's a bit different because uh, as I, as we've said before, the software part. But you may find that companies just say, no, no, well, I want to see lots of smaller companies that are more easily controlled by government. And I think that's probably where we're headed.
0: I think the FTC can make a very strong case uh, that this is anti-competitive, um, much stronger in the Microsoft uh, Activision case than the Broadcom VMware case. Uh, for its part, Microsoft says it believes the deal will expand competition. I'm not sure how they could make that argument, but they that's the, the tack they're taking. And they say they welcome the opportunity pr- to present their case in court, and they will have that opportunity.
1: Yeah. We'll see, but we'll I think see. the main story, I think, from my point of view is that you know we've been saying for a long time a couple of people push back me saying, "Why do you think governments would stop this? This is good for business?" I think I don't think it is. I think it might be good for business, but I think it's bad for society. So,
0: yeah, it would be good for Microsoft's business. I don't know that it would be good for consumers, yeah, for
1: sure. yeah, that's right, yeah. All right, a quick break to
0: tell you about our live stream event with Dell on the future of DPUs and IT infrastructure. We're gonna have that on January 23rd, 2023. DPUs are data processing units. They're special purpose hardware. They run in servers to accelerate network security and storage functions. They're creating new opportunities and challenges for distributed architectures. So you can join us to learn about how DPUs Will impact infrastructure and operations in this live stream event. We're going to have six technical sessions hosted by the Packet Pushers on topics, including what network engineers need to know about DPUs, how Dell's integrating DPUs into hyperconverged infrastructure, and how VMware's Project Monterey brings a software environment to DPUs. Uh, we've moved this date up from December to January 2023, so plenty of time to sign up uh, if you haven't already. If you have, you'll get an updated invitation. Uh, to sign up and get more details, go to packetpushers.net slash live stream. That's packetpushers.net slash for our live event on January 23rd, talking about DPUs. All right, back to the news. We did mention Broadcom earlier. They released their financial results for the fourth quarter and fiscal year of 2022. For the quarter, the company had revenues of $8.9 billion, up 21% year over year, and net income of $3.3 billion. And for the full year, the company had $33.2 billion in revenue, also up 21%, and net income of $11.4 billion. So good quarter and year.
1: Yeah, and far in excess of what um, analysts had expected. So the expectation was, you know, somewhat less than that and because they came in above it and also indicated that they still are sitting on $30 billion worth of back orders and that at this stage they have no reason not to believe that those back orders will be cancelled or that there's any particular, like, they're not predicting into 2023 what the orders are for Silicon, but... They're saying basically that it's basically looks okay at this point in time. So there's no downsides to the Broadcom. So the share uh, share price popped quite a bit, and people got very excited. And of course, we're watching Broadcom because of the VMware takeover. Um, I think the interesting part was that networking revenue was a t- record 2.5 billion, and was up 30 percent year on year. Huh. And that networking represents 35 percent of their semiconductor revenue. So those you know tomahawks and uh, June chipsets and and all of those Trident chipsets are actually working and they're selling to the hyperscale cloud customers in particular, which is what they called out. But they also talked about um, selling their Jericho switches to clouds and service providers, which is the core routers for in inside a lot of um, telco scale routers these days. And then they also called out um, their custom custom solutions for compute offload accelerators and actually passed $2 billion amount in revenues in fiscal 2022. Um, I'm not sure what those offload accelerators are. I'll have to go and dig into that. But that's interesting that networking was a big thing. And it was the first thing that Hockden called out uh, on the call to analysts. Is that, so they're obviously being quite successful selling those chips to uh, specifically to the cloud scale, which is the biggest customers for those at this point in time.
0: Yeah. Uh, for the full year, 78% of revenue came from the semiconductor side, not a surprise. Uh, 22% from its infrastructure software business. And frankly, I think that's pretty good. Uh, mm. This strategy to diversify by going into software struck a lot of people, including me, as interesting, uh, but it seems to be paying off.
1: Yeah. What's the conglomerate thing? You know, you make silicon, you know, that's a very up and down business. Like forward orders for silicon going into 2023 are dropped in by 20, 10 to 30%, depending on who you ask. Like the fabs are you know, investing vast sums of money and building out new factories, but the forward orders are already dropping as the recession seems to be slowing down customers building. But that's okay for the, you know, th- there is reason to believe that the market is slowing, but it's not, actually, we're not sure if it's here yet.
0: Yeah. Uh, CEO Hock Tan did say, quote, despite concerns of a global recession, we believe overall infrastructure spending remains strong and we continue to experience sustained demand in most of our end markets. And this is what we continue to see in Q1. So, you know, for the next three months, at least, uh, it seems like smooth sailing, uh, at least for Broadcom and infrastructure spending.
1: Yeah, no question.
0: All right, let's move on. A couple of stories uh, about space networking before we wrap up. First, an Alaskan snowmobiler used the satellite-based SMS service in his iPhone to send text to emergency services. After he was stranded in the wilderness, state troopers and area search and rescue teams were able to locate and extract the snowmobiler. Uh, they worked in conjunction with Apple's Emergency Response Center to get GPS coordinates, uh, which state troopers are reported as calling highly accurate. <laughs>
1: You know what? It worked as it's supposed to, Drew. Yes. Like, you know, the whole thing about this story is it's like a feel-good, ooh, but at the end of the day, you know what? It just worked exactly the way they said it would. It's like, do you think we would have heard the story if he said he tried to use the Apple satellite thing and it didn't work? Would we be listening to this story then?
0: Well, he might have died, so we wouldn't have heard it, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. Uh, would have said, I, I, I mean. Like-
1: I- Frankly, when it comes to
0: technology and big promises about things, particularly in regard to safety, I am always surprised when it works. So uh, I'm happy that it did or, work out, particularly okay, for this. Let,
1: let, Maybe that's the angle then. <laughs> the fact that it actually worked, everybody's surprised. All right. All right. All right. I'll go with that.
0: Taking a different angle. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I do think it's cool a neat feature for the iPhone now to help them differentiate hmm. with this uh, emergency thing. And uh, yep. so, Yeah. Uh, On the other I'm side, dumb
1: snowmobileer thought he's got satellites, so went and did a dumb thing. So, you know, that, that's called moral hazard. Moral you know, hazard, I guess, yeah. yes.
0: Yes. Mm. But uh, not Apple's fault. I, people have been making very bad decisions with the wilderness for years, so, I, you know, I'm not going to fault for that <laughs> one. <laughs> Uh, Sticking with space networking, uh, SpaceX is getting into secure satellite networks for government entities with its Starshield venture. Proposed use cases include encrypted communications and Earth observation for government entities.
1: Yeah, we've seen um, SpaceX and Starlink be very, very popular in the Ukraine war. Lots of headlines where we've talked about it. And it's really proven that Starlink or this idea of a distributed satellite network is much more efficient than the current ones where we have... A satellites in fixed orbit because they can be taken out or their targets. And we know that at the start of that war, the Russians were able to jam certain frequencies and to compromise legacy devices. Whereas Starlink has been a real um, success factor for Ukraine, and they've been clear about that. And you can't cannot not believe that militaries around the world are going like, how can we build a SpaceX-type network? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so SpaceX doesn't want to see that money go off into its competitors or build a competitor who's going to be able to launch those satellites and build a, you know, they don't want Lockheed Martin building one and then selling it to NASA sure. or, yep. or, you know, the Department of Defense building its own. And then so Starlink is basically pre-announcing with absolutely nothing, you know, <laughs> <it's> probably got <laughs> nothing other than the rock, you know, it's got the SpaceX rockets, of course, that it can launch and it's proven that it can do all of the software orchestration and everything, but saying we have a military you know, we're going to build a military version of this, why don't build your own, come and buy ours, and get their hands on lots of free government money. You know, there's nothing like a good tap into the military funds to grow a business that's not very profit sensitive.
0: Well, I will say that nothing on the website says military or says spy services, but it seems like those use cases would be top of mind for government entities. Uh, Mm -hmm. And of course, as you uh, have often noted, Elon Musk does tap into the public market sector. So this makes perfect sense. Uh, And I'm sure there's probably going to be a demand for it. I do think things could get tricky because presumably SpaceX is going to offer Star Shield to any kind of government. uh, So that could have (laughs) (laughs) implications down the line.
1: (laughs) I think you'll find it won't be offering it to any government. It'll only be offering it to ones that are US approved because when you get involved with the US military, so for example, in the Ukraine war, uh, Germany wanted to supply a certain type of ammunition to Ukraine. And they had to get approval from Switzerland, which was where it was manufactured. Part of the condition mm. of sale was that uh-huh. the Swiss government gets to decide, and they refused to allow that to happen. And the German government has now cancelled all orders for the, you know, no, we'll do no business with Switzerland going forward because Germany can't do anything with that ammunition. They can't provide it. So mm. they can only use it for their own country sort of thing. So that's an interesting side effect. But so in this case, I think you're going to find the US government's going to say, Yes, but you can't sell it to these countries that are on the prohibited list because SpaceX is a US company. One thing interesting I noticed though was they're saying the satellites are capable of integrating a wide variety of payloads. So I think what they're saying there is that they'll launch Starshield satellites, but the military might provide their own uh, communications capability of their own electronics that's done Right, their by... own
0: packages inside the satellite. Yeah, yeah that would make sense.
1: Uh-huh. And it's just, they're just providing the launch and the satellite capability and all you need to do is provide the bit that launches on, you know, goes on the back. So mm-hmm. that's an mm-hmm. interesting approach. Whether they're actually providing the network, so I think Starshield will provide the communications for a lot of people and they'll go to some lengths to provide, you know, whatever it is that the military think they want. Earth observation was another one, but also the ability to do haste to payload. So if you want to have you know, ordinary military, army, navy, air force coordination. But if you want to do super secret stuff like FBI or MI6, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. secret services, they might have to put up their own haste payload. So something there for everyone. We'll see if it works out.
0: Yeah, uh, I will note the website has almost no detail. It's just uh, nice and slick uh, and interesting looking. I'm sure it's designed to just get uh, government contractors to start talking to uh, Starlink about uh, Starshield
1: it's also a bet that their starship actually flies because they will need something to fill up the tonnage that, that can lift a space. Right.
0: Mm. All right, as always, links in the show notes if you want to go check it out yourself. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is our last episode for 2022. Thanks for spending some time with us this year. We're wishing you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. I hope you get to spend some time with friends and family and maybe have a bit of rest and may you enjoy many festive virtual donuts. Uh, please do stick around for our Tech Bytes podcast. Uh, we're talking with Fortnite about their Fortisassy offering that's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we explore sponsor Fortinet's Secure Access Service Edge or SASE offering. This includes the 40 client agent uh, and cloud-delivered security services. We'll find out what security services are available. We'll also talk about SASE use cases and more. Our guest is Nirav Shah. He is VP of products at Fortinet. Nirav, welcome back to the podcast. So the industry's had cloud-delivered security for some time. Is there really something different with SASE?
2: I think you're right. So so look, industry does have the cloud-delivered security when they talk about SASE. But there is more than that. When Fortinet talks about SASE, it's really bringing the convergence of cloud-delivered security and networking. And let's take a look at two components inside that, right? If you have seen the history of Fortinet last 20 plus years, we strongly believed in that convergence of networking and security, which we built via Mm OS. And now Mm -hmm. what we have been developing for last three, four years is really bringing that OS also cloud-delivered so we can also provide that same convergence for the remote users and thin edges.
1: Funny how you can take a a, a, a route, I always call, called a firewall a router that doesn't work. And it's funny how we've taken the doesn't work as a router type functionality to turn it into an SD-WAN so that the same firewall operating system we used for Fortinet firewalls is now an SD-WAN. But SASE is the convergence of networking and security. So I guess the question I wanted to ask or drill into is, SD-WAN is kind of a router. It uses all sorts of different things to make the edge better. But how does the security get in there?
2: Yeah. So, so Greg, this has been a discussion with most of our customers. Today, if you look at um, the problem, uh, in especially post-pandemic, is there are three distinct networks. As you rightly said, there's an SD-WAN network on the brand side. There is a campus data center network for the firewall. And there's a remote user network. What Fortinet has been doing is, because it's the common Forty OS, which could be deployed anywhere, we also make sure that the security angle, which is our fully guard labs, we provide that consistent security across all of those deployment. And that's important, right? Because now, no matter where users are, wherever they're connecting for, to that SASE network, they get that exact same security by our threat intelligence team and our AI ML services so that the security remains consistent across all of those networks.
1: So so that's an important point here so just for people who don't know, Fortinet actually has their own threat analysis team and threat intelligence service. So some sassy providers go and buy a threat capability from a third party and they bundle it up. Or some people take their SD-WAN and then point it at a third party service who has does the threat intelligence and the logging and the IDS and the IDP. But you've actually got built your own. But that was always part of the firewall product anyway, when you went up to application firewalling. So it's not like you had to build it from the ground up
2: it is and and this is a huge differentiator for fortinet because over the last 20 plus years one of the biggest investment that we have made is building that 40 car lapse based intelligence and Greg, i want to tell you some of the power behind these technologies mm. we have over 9 million plus sensors globally deployed where we make sure we learn different things which are happening on the network. And from there, we process over 200 billion plus data every day. So every day, we are able to provide 4 million plus new updates, whether it's related to IPS or URL filtering or DNS. And that goes into Mm. all the network, whether it's on-prem, SASE, or in cloud.
1: So that's all those firewalls that are out there reporting or, you know, running application firewalls with the threat intelligence added is also being used in the SASE. so in effect you're getting SASE is a firewall with extra stuff in it like the whole threat capability
2: you're right greg and and that's where again it goes back to the definition of core definition of SASE. the key components are secure web gateway and a firewall as a service and as part of mm. that while remote user will use 40 client to connect or it can use agent less to connect to the sassy mm-hmm. they get all of the enterprise-grade security functionality for an inline security protection before they mm. go out.
0: <laughs> okay, so you touched on something important, I think, that folks who are thinking about SaaS need to know there is a client piece that goes on an end-user's device, yes?
2: Yes, so the 40 client is an agent that we have been developing. Uh, it used to use for a VPN, and now we made it very simple in the last four years where the same 40 client agent can do VPN to ZTNA as well as the all SASE capabilities, as well as the Caspi, So the same unified agent allows you to do this journey from migrating from VPN to full-blown the SASE functionality
0: okay so it's one client if i want to plug uh you know say an application and have it go through to hit a, a fortinet pop get the security scanning and then go on to its destination can i also say split tunnel if i want to run a traditional vpn connection back to a private app uh, in my data center
2: you do we are, so we do support split tunneling in case uh, where you are sending traffic to the sassy and you still wanted something on the separate you can do that so yes we do support that okay
0: Now, is this agent just for getting me remote access or does it provide security features, uh, you know, on that endpoint device as well?
2: So 40 client has always been a big uh, development around the endpoint protection or EPP functionality. So, while you can connect to our point of presence for a ZTNA and SASE, the same 40 client agent on the device does provide anti malware, anti ransomware information, as well as URL and sandbox. Again, this goes back to Greg's earlier point. Mm. We try to make sure that the security intelligence that we have is applied via agent on endpoint in the cloud, as well as the overall ecosystem that Fortinet built from a security mm. fabric platform.
1: So that unified agent, that 40 client was a VPN client, but now what you're actually saying is it's part of the, it becomes like a a sassy edge and has the same functionality of a sassy device. So what we think of as an SD-WAN, you put an SD-WAN device at the edge of the, and connect it to the internet. You're actually putting the same functionality from that just into a client that goes onto a a laptop or a, a smartphone.
2: That's correct, and that's we, that's something you will see in all Fortinet initiatives. We are a strong hmm. believer of consolidation and convergence. So rather so than what, be, yeah, correct, What
1: manages that? So is that agent? Does it have a separate platform, or is it managed by the SESI platform?
2: So it is managed by a SASE platform. So inside the SASE, we have an endpoint management software uh, control plane, so it can Mm -hmm. manage. So when you have a new user onboarding happening from that 40 SASE management, very easily Mm -hmm. you can send them a link. You can integrate with your IDP provider and the new user onboard come in to now connect to the SASE pop. Now, Greg, we do provide. There are customers mm-hmm. who prefer to have their own EMS software as a cloud or as a hardware. We do again provide that if there is a requirement for that. Okay.
0: So let's get into some of the details about the SASE offering. We touched on the endpoint element, but there is that that cloud delivered security part, which I think is what people want you know, are really looking for from Sassy. So you mentioned firewall as a service, you mentioned secure web gateway. Are there other capabilities that I'm getting when I send traffic into a Fortinet pop for security and policy enforcement?
2: Yes, so the three there are three distinct use cases, and one of the one uh, that we touched upon is a secure internet access, right? Which really about remote user before they go out and access any internet, any SaaS application, that is always on security, which is provided in line, and we talked about the security effectiveness. But the second, more important use case is private application when users are remote and when they are trying to access applications which are in the data center or in the cloud or campus. Now, SASE also enables the private access. And for that private access, we have a very flexible approach. Customers can use ZTNA as part of our SASE, or we also enable SD-WAN inside the point of presence to connect for the private access.
0: Okay, can you drill into that a little bit? What, what do you mean by "I'm accessing SD-WAN inside the POP?
2: Yeah, so so as we have talked in the past where Portnet has several customers who have deployed the secure SD-WAN. So they have deployed secure SD-WAN in a branch as well as in data center and cloud and that network is up and running. Now when the users go remote and they connect to the nearest point of presence using that 40 client agent. In that POP, we will do identity check, device posture check. And from there, we can actually enable SD-WAN and connect into that SD-WAN network, wherever that SD-WAN hub is, and we allow them to do a private access. So as you can see, they don't need to make any changes on their existing network. Just go on to the SASE point of presence, and from there, because it's the same 40 US, we enable SD WAN and connect back to the network for a private access.
1: That's really significant from an operational, from security operations, or just operating the network. If I'm on the help desk, I don't have to worry about the VPN client connecting to a VPN concentrator, connecting to a firewall. You know, it's got a completely different path to the WAN, which comes into a different part of the, and then you've got the data center, and then you've got campuses. You're just saying that the policy. Is one thing everywhere. So even as a user moves around to within limits, it, it goes with them, right? They, they get similar policies or they're administered by the same platform.
2: Simplicity is the key, Greg. And that's really what we are trying to go, right? Because as users are going to move around, we want to make sure that that best in class security stays with them. And we get the visibility. So that 40 SASE cloud based management portal can give you full visibility into the user's traffic, data, threats. But then also, allows them to have a better user experience, right? For the VPN, it works great. But the problem is the user experience challenges and implicit access. So with this Hmm. kind of approach, not only we make it simple, but also improve the user experience and enable explicit access, which is a win-win for both
0: is is that where the ZTNA element comes in because one of the the drawbacks we know with the traditional IPsec VPN client is that once you're on the network you're on the network uh, and the idea behind ZTNA was to provide a higher degree of filtering in terms of the applications and services you can actually access.
2: Yeah, I think ZTNA I would say in in majority of the sassy conversations ZTNA is one of the biggest use cases because it instantly allows now those users to have an explicit access to only that specific app But more importantly, we are doing continuous verification of that user, right? So even Mm -hmm. though we have granted access to some user to a private application, suddenly if something happens and the device is vulnerable, we are going to terminate that connection. So having that kind of flexibility and security, uh, which has a context behind it, is a key. And that's why a lot of organizations are using ZTNA more as part of the SASE use case.
0: Right, because you're getting that uh, user identity element, but also device posture element. Is is it running the most upgraded version of the client, and that and so on? It doesn't have malware present, that kind of thing.
2: Correct, but mm. but one thing that differentiate here, again, Fortinet is uh, to our earlier discussion. Today in the market, you will hear if you want to do ZTNA, you have to go to the a kind of a cloud delivered service. While Fortinet supports that, that ZTNA application gateway is there in every FortiOS instance. So, if customers have ZTNA or mm. the 40 OS deployed in any of other location, they can also use that, and that's why we call it universal ZTNA.
1: This comes back to the fact that 40 OS is the same everywhere. You have the same operating system across firewalls, SASE edge, SD WAN edge. That it's you know all of your stuff runs the same operating system in the same applications.
2: Agree. And that's a big differentiator for Fortinet because we believe in organic innovation. Of course, we acquired smaller companies, but we believe that if we build this kind of newer technologies into our core offering so that we can showcase that full convergence, and then it goes into our security fabric as a platform, it's much easier for customers to consume. I know today we may Mm -hmm. not get a time to go into the platform we have covered in the past, but ultimately it's about how do we integrate these newer technologies in a simple way while providing that consistent security everywhere.
0: And Rav, I want to come back to one more thing. We, you, you mentioned uh, three different use cases, secure internet access, secure private access, which lets you get to those private apps. Uh, what's the third?
2: The third is a secure SaaS access. And especially in today's environment where more and more SaaS applications have been used, Fortinet has also developed CASB functionality. So now in the SASE offering, we do provide inline CASB as well as we provide an API-based CASB because there are two different use cases there, right? When uh, as a user, I'm trying to access any application, we make sure that we provide that visibility of application and control with compliance for an inline CASB, Mm -hmm. but there are certain use cases where you might want a deeper integration with application where API-based CASB is also available.
0: Okay, so for instance, if there's a specific function inside a SaaS application that I want to allow or deny users based on role or whatever, with that uh, uh, API-based CASB, I can get that deeper integration? Is that the idea?
2: Exactly, yes. It gives you much more control and, and compliance. It will really help. So they both have a use cases, but you're right. Ultimately, uh, it's it's the flexibility, right? The SaaS is a framework uh, and the customers can pick and choose those offerings. Uh, it, it's part of that 40 client. So when they buy 40 client agent, all of those functionality, including CASB comes along with it.
0: Okay, so that, that's the other thing I want to, to touch on is if I'm going to buy into Fortinet SASE, what am I, is it just software? Is it just that agent client and then I get the services? How does it, what what am I looking at buying?
2: Yes, it's really, uh, so the entire thing is per user-based. So uh, the, the only thing you need is to decide is how many users you want to protect. And for that many users, you can have that 40 client agent or you can use agent less for approximate. And uh, for each user, we support three devices by default. Mm-hmm. So that that's the only thing you need to purchase. And then everything mm-hmm. else we talked about, all SASE offering security services, ZTNA, CASB comes built mm-hmm. in.
0: So the the agent is really the key here, exactly. You
1: now that that welding the SD WAN SASE together with the VPN, so you don't have another network for a remote access, or a network for SD WAN, you know, and then a network in the data center, and a in another, then you have the campus. Bringing them all together means less work and better security posture overall. You might take you some time to get there, but that's that's the dream, yeah. right?
2: And that's the end goal for a lot of organizations today. I think in the beginning, we talked about three distinct network. So now with what we talked about, there is a path where they can go towards converging those remote worker network, the application-based data center and a campus network, and the branch network together and have a seamless user experience with security.
0: All right. Well, that does uh, conclude the time we have with you today, Narav. If folks are interested in getting more details about what Fortinet's doing with SASE, where should they go?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for, for all the great discussion here. Uh, they can go to fortinet.com slash products slash sassy for more information.
0: All right. That's fortinet.com slash products slash sassy. We'll also have that link in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, thanks, around for being with us and to Fortinet for sponsoring. Uh, more importantly, thank you for listening. We've got many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at PacketPushers.net. There's a ton of educational content on our YouTube channel. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and if you would, rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.